This is the Perfectly Mentored Podcast with your host, Jason Portnoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Perfectly Mentored. I'm your host, Jason Portnoy. My guest on this episode is Derek Morgan. That name sounds familiar. It's because he was a first round draft pick for the Tennessee Titans. He's played nine years there and he'll be the first to tell you ever since a young age who is challenging the status quo. Uh, a man who has come and realized the importance of financial literacy for himself uh, to become an investor, an entrepreneur, to go back and get his MBA even. And, you know, just even he was one of the good fights for for medical marijuana in the league. He was part of Game Changers, the Netflix documentary about uh, being a vegan. And most importantly, the man has a giant heart and was raised with giant morals that made him want to get back to his community and start uh, impact fund and impact investing to help his community to help uh, champion the next round of minority entrepreneurs. This is an amazing episode. Derek is an amazing guy. You're going to want to hear this one. Check it out. Derek, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Jason, thanks for uh, having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to dive in. Yeah, look, tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, from first round draft pick to business mogul and social impact investor, like this is a crazy climb, a crazy journey. Not many people ever get to experience something like that. So I want to hear how your story kind of developed. Yeah, man, it's been a uh, roller coaster to some extent, um, but all in all, I feel very grateful with the path that God has really um, allowed for me to follow. Um, I would say, man, just getting a chance where I'm from, I'm from a, a small town called Coatesville, Pennsylvania, south side of Philadelphia, and it's an old steel town, um, not really a much going on there. Um, so for me, my way of getting out was through athletics. And that's really where I narrowed in on when I found out that I could really get my education paid for. You know, my, my mom and, you know, other uh, mentors in my life were talking about, man, you got to get uh, a free education. That's, that was my number one goal because education was always very important in my household. Um, it was very, um, it was, it was priority. So before I had to, you know, go to football practice or wherever, I had to make sure all my homework was done and that was just a, you know, I was a student athlete. And so I was always on honor roll A's and B's um, in large part to my mom's structure that she had in place. So I was thankful for that in hindsight. Um, but really when I got a uh, scholarship offer to Georgia Tech, uh, I took it. I, I graduated early from high school, um, was, was on campus in Atlanta in January of 2007. And, um, you know, my whole mindset was, I just want to play. I don't want a red shirt. I want to get on the field as early as I can and um, was able to play as a true freshman on special teams, came back sophomore year, had a really solid year. And then junior year is really when I broke out um, and had, you know, a very dominant year and in, in uh, a lot of categories, sacks, CFLs, et cetera. Um, but uh, in large part was due to the mentality and the work ethic that I had coming into that last year was really just ready to go on to the, to the NFL because was seeing, I was seeing a lot of people that were, I was playing with like, man, if he, if he made it, then I, I might have a shot at this thing. Um, so I really dove into it, man. And, and uh, was able to get drafted first round. And um, unfortunately, but fortunately uh, had a, a, a season ending knee injury my rookie year. And so tore my ACL, my meniscus MCL just blew my whole knee out. 
And you're talking about somebody who had never really had any major injuries. And so that was a real blow um, on many levels, even from an identity to a, you know, just what's my value? Like I was on the sideline, you know, I, I was always in the game. I never missed practice, never missed games. So for me to be on the sideline watching with this weight of expectation as a first round pick was very um, jarring. And it forced me in a lot of ways to wake up, um, really establishing my identity and who I was and um, what that really meant. Um, also just in terms of, of this narrative of, of a football player and what did that really mean? And if this career was to be over today, I didn't even know what else I was gonna be, you know, what, I, what else was I good at? What was I gonna do? And so that was a scary thought to say, like, if this thing were to be over, what's the rest of your life consist of? And at 22, you're not really thinking like that. But this injury forced me to sit down and evaluate a lot of things in my life. And now at 32, I'm thankful that that, that took place because, you know, my trajectory was, it was, it, I don't know where I would have ended up. Um, but thankfully I was able to have this kind of like coming to Jesus moment where I was able to recalibrate and, and, and reprioritize things. And it really set me on my trajectory that I'm on today. I, I mean, the mindset that you have to have in order to experience something like that and be like, okay, I'm going to come back. I, I think many people don't get it. Many people watching sports, for example, on TV, okay, he had an injury, uh, maybe a season's done, but like, okay, he'll go, he'll go get a job. He'll be fine. Or, or he made his millions in, in year one, whatever. He'll be fine. It's very hard for an average person. Uh, and I, I mean, average in the sense of not a professional athlete, but someone who does a day-to-day -day job um, and does their nine to five, they, they won't experience something like that. Talk to me about like the, the mental, like the way you have to adjust mentally in order to experience that, because this was your all in. Right. It's like it's, it's like having a job saying this is your all in and that job firing you and you have nothing lined up after that. And not many people are ever put in a position like that. So I, I want to kind of make this relatable a little bit to people because it's a monumental mindset that you have to overcome there. Yeah, it's, it's just like I tell people, like, you know, just think about doctors or neurosurgeons or whatever the case you put 10, 15 years of education in you know, residencies and all this, you know, education, and this is what you are, this is what you do. And then for some reason, you know, the next day you can't do it no more. Like that's a very, um, you know, that, that wakes you up. And now that, like you said, not a lot of people experience that it's more of a gradual transition. And, and for, but for athletes, it's all, it's all or nothing. A lot of the times when it comes to professional level, but you know, it, it's, it's rightly so like, you almost have to be very narrow in your approach to get to that level. And so it's high risk, high reward. Um, but the mindset is, okay, once you get to that level, A, how do you stay at that level? And B, this level doesn't always last. Like you could be a doctor for 40 plus years. You can't play in the NFL unless you're Tom Brady for 40 plus years. So it's one of those things where you got to diversify yourself and you got to understand what you're good at outside of being just an athlete and that is a process because you've put so much into this one thing over the last 20 years from the time I was 10 years old I've been groomed to be an athlete right and 
but your career path is only this short little window. And so it's, it's you know, it's a catch 22 in some respects, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because what it has done has allowed me to uh, uh, play on such of a platform, man, to just have a certain level of influence in what I was able to understand at a younger age because of some of my adversity was how powerful that platform, that platform was and to start thinking about how to use it, not only for myself, but for the good of others, like for the people who came from Coatesville that didn't make it out, right? So how do you leverage who you are and, and, and your influence to, for the good of others who don't have the same opportunities? And so, you know, probably halfway through my career, you know, when I, I'm two kids in by this time, you know, married, whole different mindset on life where I wasn't living as selfishly and started to think about others more than myself. Um, not all the time, obviously. I'm not, you know, Mother Teresa, but it was more so like, okay, like there's got to be a way to leverage this thing. And so that really opened me up to a lot of different industries like impact investing, like uh, real estate development and all these different things that were capitalistic in, in the context of like those industries. But with the, the mindset that I had, which a lot of it came from philanthropy, but taking that mindset of helping people, but in not only helping people, but empowering people um, through these traditional capitalistic means, right, of investing in businesses or developing real estate projects, um, really looking at it holistically of how is everybody affected by this, not just the bottom line of what I'm going to make on my money. And so that really um, started me on my path of where I'm at today and what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis currently. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm going to dive deep into that. I, like, I have so many questions about that. Um, I had a clothing brand before I started my agency and before we started uh, working with clients. Uh, and I worked with a bunch of professional athletes. And my time uh, meeting a lot of them, there's one thing I always hear um, is that when they they, they love the sport. There's a love for, for playing, but when they go pro, they quickly realize that it's a business, right? It's not the same as when they were playing in school. It's not the same as when, you know, they were playing for fun uh, out on the streets. It's, it's a business. The NFL is, was, and still is a business. Uh, it's a hard adjustment for, for a lot of professional athletes. Did you feel that way at all? Yeah. Yes. But, um, I wasn't surprised. I, I was, I would say I was prepared as I could have been for um, the business of the NFL and also the transition from out of the NFL. Uh, uh, I would say you're absolutely correct in your analysis in, in college. You know, I, I wasn't even worried about my stats, like literally until like the last part of my junior year when somebody was like, hey, you, you're in striking distance of the sack record. And when I started focusing on that, my play suffered because I was so worried about the stats and all that. And I wasn't just in the moment enjoying the game. And when you get to the NFL, it's all about that. It's, it's, not, it's not this team camaraderie, you know, like it is in college. It's, it's special because you choose to go there. You know, I went to Georgia Tech largely in part because of my recruiting class and the relationships I had with my teammates. Um, in, in the NFL, it's not like that. It's a revolving door especially if you're on a team like you know back in 2010 titans weren't really like an awesome team so it was a revolving door and even more so like 2014 2015 like i mean from that stretch we won five games in two years 
And so that was a real hard thing and just on many levels, but just seeing how quickly a locker room can turn over, all the people that were getting cut. I remember when I started, uh, we had a, a workout um, my rookie year, right before, like right during cut day. And I started the workout with like seven, eight other rookies. And by the time the workout was over in the span of 45 minutes, it was me and one other person that was left. You know, they was coming and getting them, like coming and getting them, like, hey, get your playbook. So that is something that I seen early. I, I had five head coaches, man, um, three general managers, you know, a couple position changes. Like I, I seen a lot by just kind of being in one spot, um, coincidentally. Um, so it was something that I learned early on, man. And, you know, being a first round pick, they want you to come in and produce day one. So I was already getting called a bust from, you know, tearing my ACL and coming back from that ACL and not having a great year and, you know, it was a lot of pressure. How does that weigh? How does that weigh on you? Because we think athletes are like they don't hear the noise, they don't hear all that, they don't hear the media, they mm-hmm. just go out and perform. How, how, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, you you you're aware of it, man. I don't care what you say, especially now, man. There's so many touch points. You know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. You turn it on, you're gonna get. You know, you're gonna see something. And so, it was. Um, I, I think I had the highest expectations out of anybody on myself. And you pair that with the world's expectations of you. Oh man, you know, it's a lot of weight and, you know, playing through injuries. Like a lot of the times, like, man, I, I got to play because I can't be a bust. I got to go and I got to play on a high ankle sprain. I got to play on a torn meniscus. And, you know, my second year coming into my second year, I had surgery again on my same knee that I blew out and played 15 days later. So it was like, man, like I was so, wanting to like please people right and and prove people wrong but it's a trap though you you can't please everybody you'll never please everybody and you got to play really for an audience of one and you got to really compete with yourself and that's something that I didn't get until probably midway happening you know latter part of my career um but it's you know it's weight you know you're aware of it man like it ain't like you just can just block everything out unless you just turn everything off which is really hard to do so yeah, it's there. When did you start like really paying attention to financial literacy? Um, and do you think they're doing a good enough job with the athletes today in sports of really trying to make them uh, understand financial literacy for and, and, and life after after the, their playing time? When you say they, are you talking about the league and the unions? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm so, oh, in general, I, I don't know whose responsibility it comes down to. Does it come down to the, the agent? Does it come down mm-hmm. to the manager? Does it come down to the team? Does it come down to the league? The, is, it, is it the union? Who? Yeah. I mean, or is it just none of these people? They're responsible to run their organization. The agent's responsible to get the best contract so he can make money and they could make money and they could all, mm-hmm. they could all be happy. And it really just comes down to the athlete to, to figure out and learn financial literacy. And that could be an okay answer, too. I don't know right. who's supposed to get that. I don't know who's supposed to be. Um, and I think the fact that we're actually having this conversation shows that the answer is probably no, they're not doing a good enough job doing this because, <laughs> because we, we don't even know who's supposed to properly be doing it. So right. I, guess, I guess I'll change the question. Who in your mind do you think the responsibility comes down to it? And then how did you take it upon yourself to, to start taking that seriously? Man, it's... It's funny because nobody really like most people will say it's your advisor to educate you on financial decisions and estate planning and taxes. And 
right? Like that should be your advisor's role because you've hired them for a specific, because they have a specific skill set and they're supposed to guide you and that's what they're getting paid to do. But how often does that really happen? Uh, rarely. Uh, and it's not all on them. Like I remember I was 21 and 22. I wasn't, I wasn't asking the right questions because my, it, my, I wasn't prioritizing it. Right. And you also don't know what questions to ask in all fairness, you right? Don't know which to, exactly. You don't know what to ask. I didn't know how to write a check when I got to the league, hmm. right? Like I didn't have financial literacy. I worked a lot. I had seven jobs by the time I left high school, but I didn't have a sophistication with finances. It, my, my mindset was more so just survival mode because that's how we lived, right? It was paycheck to paycheck and, pay your bills and hopefully you got enough to go eat at Applebee's, you know? So that's, that's how it worked. But it was more of a transition period when you came into some money, like, Oh, like you're now the financial patriarch of your family and everybody's looking at you to, um, to save them right from their financial woes and financial uh, their bad financial decisions. Um, but what I would say, what's really woke me up, I had a crazy couple of years in the first couple of years in the league, man, like tore my ACL, had a baby and then lost, uh, lost some money. And, and, and I had, you know, a very passive relationship with my finances. Cause you know, I hired this, I hired this person. You're supposed to take care of my money and, and steward it in the right ways. And that's what you're good at. I'm going to go over here and, and make money on the field. Um, but it didn't work like that within six months, six to 12 months of me being with this firm, um, you know, I think it was my, my second or third year, they had, they were basically caught up in some type of fraudulent scheme where the SEC had them on um, their watch list. And I was getting emails and, you know, from the players union, like, Hey, if you have this person, like watch out. And I was like, I do. And so long story short, ended up losing um, some money, not nothing catastrophic, but it was enough to like, hurt where it was like whoa like what are you doing and it was probably like 15 to 20 athletes that were wrapped up into this thing some guys lost millions and so that experience at age 23 22 was like okay I no longer can be passive with my finances I gotta check my account I need to understand what this transfer means I need to understand why am I allocated this percentage into bonds and this percentage into stocks and what is my end goal here? And so uh, from that experience, uh, I really just took a hands-on approach and I started to ask a million questions, Jason. Like I was calling my advisor every other day, like, hey, John, like, what does this mean? Why, why am I getting charged this fee for this transaction? And what is it, you know what I'm saying? Like just fundamental questions that a lot of us are, and I know myself, was I was guilty of just being too prideful and not, not being humble enough to say, I, I don't know. Do, do you think because... it's pride? Do you think it's prideful or because I see this mistake in business all the time where people um, mistake uh, delegation and abdication, right? Like they want to outsource something um, and there is a responsibility, right? Like, like there is a difference between delegating and totally abdicating your responsibility. And sometimes when you get a financial advisor, like in a position like this, you're, you're, you're in your early twenties, you're coming in, you get, you're getting thrown money at you and you have a guy who's supposed to be in charge. It's like, no, you go run with it. I don't know this stuff. 
that's abdicating versus now you're delegating the responsibility. Now you're part of the, you want to know what's going on, but you run the show. I'm just going to ask questions. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, I think more, it needs to be more of the latter than what you originally mentioned, because when you completely just remove yourself from the process, that's when the fraudulent things happen. That's when people get swindled out of doubt and their money, um, but I, I went the whole, all the way, all, you know, the other extreme end of the spectrum where I was just like, no, I want to know every transaction. I'm checking my account every day. And when you lose money, you're like, nah, I'm never letting it up to nobody else to, to, to take care of my finances. I don't care if I got to spend time during the season, after the season, I'm flying to see you. I'm going to ask all the dumb questions because as an athlete, as a professional athlete, you don't ever want to be. Uh, you don't ever want to feel like you're not the greatest at something or you're not or you're outside your comfort zone. So for, for a lot of or athletes like, or, or like the, the dumb athlete, uh, like the stereotypical, uh, yeah, stereotypical dumb, dumb, athlete. dumb athlete. Yeah, I didn't want to be that at all. I was like, man, I don't want to be that guy, but it don't matter because they're already looking at you like that. It doesn't matter. So I'm like, look, you guys already think I'm clueless. I might as well start asking all these damn questions. So that's what I did, man. And, and what I what I'm thankful for is most guys, they get put in these very conservative asset allocations. I was in 80% bonds, like 80% bonds and like 15% stocks and the rest treasuries. And I'm like, I get it. Cause that's how you preserve your money. Um, but that's not how you grow your money. So I'm like, okay, I get it. Preservation, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm starting to learn alternative investments um, yes, maybe it's a little bit more risk, but yes, I understand the risk. Why aren't we investing in real estate? Why aren't we investing in private equity? Why aren't we putting a little bit in venture capital? So I started looking at these different industries and learning about it and understanding the risk and then finding people that I trusted within those industries that could help shape my thinking on how to invest into those industries. And that's how I, that's what I've, that's what I've done ever since 2014 is really branched out and diversified and got out of the traditional cookie cut approach, cookie cutter approach. And now you're, you're an entrepreneur, right? And, and entrepreneurship is a lonely sport versus you played <laughs> your whole life, a team sport. So, so I guess I'm curious in, in your mind as someone who's played both, no, not many people on a professional level, you're a professional entrepreneur. You do really well for yourself. Uh, you went back, you got your MBA, something we could definitely talk about. You, you're a smart, you're a smart guy, a, 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 a really talented entrepreneur and a talented professional athletes who played a team sport, what skills um, do you think being an athlete prepared you the most for the business world? Knowing how to deal with adversity and knowing how to get hit in the face and just taking that and then coming back even harder. So in business, people say business is a contact sport and it is. And being an, a, a real estate entrepreneur, like, I got hit in the mouth like twice two weeks ago. And, you know, it was like, whoa, where did that come from? Like, you know, I wasn't expecting that. And, and it really, you know, I had to like problem solve and get creative and like deal with the adversity and then continue to per, like persist. That's what ath like athletes like will we'll get hit with adversity, um, whether it's an injury, whether it's a bad play, whether it's whatever it is, but then you got to find a way to overcome the adversity and then come back harder. And, and the persistence of that always striving is like where a lot of people I see 
don't make it. They'll get in, stuck in this comfort zone or this fear of failure where you don't push through the, the discomfort, you don't push through the adversity and you settle. So I think that ambition that I had to become a professional athlete, I now take on the other side of, I, I see a goal, I set a goal, I see a target, I'm going to hit that target whatever, no, no matter what it takes. And so it's, it's one of those things where I've developed that, that muscle memory over years and years of playing football and having to overcome things and now translate that into the business world. I think that's well said. And I, I think that that definitely applies uh, in, in every area of your life. I think adversity happens in your personal life, your business life. I think that's a, a lesson we could take uh, on, on all sides. I, I want to hear yeah. a little bit about, about your, uh, I want to hear a little bit about your impact, your impact fund and how do you come to grow that? And, and also I'd love to hear how you, how you now have become uh, almost the, the champion I guess, of creating the next generation of minority entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, why, why that was, you know, I'm going to go take care of me and then that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to focus on next. And, and why, uh, starting an impact fund was so important to you. Yeah, man, it is, it goes back to what we talked about around, okay. It's more to life than just you being successful and you being at this certain stage and, um, to me, it, I just feel like God's blessed me with such of a ability, um, you know, just to be a, a blessing to others and to be an impact for my community. And when I started to like think about retirement, you know, 2018 was my last year. I knew it was my last year. Um, I was just ready to, you know, mentally I wasn't, I wasn't there. And physically my body was just, you know, starting to deteriorate. And I was like, man, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm nine years in, I'm 29 years old. Um, you know, which I probably could have gotten in a couple of years. I could have, I could have stole a couple of years, couple of years, like they say. Um, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, launch into my next chapter. And so when I uh, was going through that first off season um, in 2019, the first place I went back to was my hometown. And we had done, you know, numerous community outreach over the years, um, but really never seen the needle being moved in a meaningful way. And so when I went back there, I went back with a different perspective. Um, and it was an economic perspective to say, how can we help these people who are in poverty, 35% poverty rate in my hometown, um, yet situated in the richest county in Pennsylvania? How can we leverage resources to empower people? Um, does that mean investing in businesses? Does that mean creating um, workforce development, jobs training programs? Does that mean uh, creating youth engagement, you know, ways to engage the youth, all these plethora of things. And so from going back to my hometown, I started to learn about things like opportunity zones. Opportunity zones um, was a part of the 2017, um, you know, tax overhaul, and it designated certain census tracts as um, opportunity zones based on poverty levels and et cetera, which gave investors who put their money in these places a tax incentive. And so that was to me, okay, like, great. The program's not perfect, but it's a tool. You know, what are the tools that we can deploy to help areas like my hometown? And so when I started to look across the board of, you know, opportunity zones and these areas where largely are underserved and resources don't flow to, I said, wow, okay, this is a great resource. It's a great tool. 
Um, and then more broadly speaking, I just kind of started to see myself as this intermediary, right? Because there's the, there's like people in different tax brackets usually don't associate with one another. Like there's there's not a there's not a problem of of capital up here. People who have capital are always trying to 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 work their capital and allocate it. Uh, but they're and they may have you know great goals, social social environmental goals with their capital, but they just don't understand where to put it. And so if I'm down here in this tax bracket and I'm screaming like we need help, we need resources, we need blah blah blah, I'm not reaching up to this level. There's no, there's no connection. So as a professional athlete, a lot of us come from these areas down here, but now we've been able to get to this tax bracket and, and get in these rooms and get in these circles where people who are, you know, rubbing elbows with a professional athlete, but it's like, yeah, cool about, you know, Peyton Manning, top, yeah, cool, great. But my hometown down here, we got a 35% poverty rate. People don't have jobs. We need to, we need to figure out how to funnel this money to this community in a meaningful way, blah, 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 blah. So that's where I started to see myself as like, yo, this is the role that we need to be playing, right? We have relationships, we have a great network and the team, our, 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 our group is called Kingdom Group and our team is very diverse. We have a large, robust network of family offices, foundations, institutions, community leaders, churches, nonprofits. And we have this crazy ecosystem where there's a lot of resources and there's also a lot of opportunities. And so when I started to really like, assess the landscape, I said, this is something that I, I see myself being very effective in. And so we took that ideology and said, look, let's do this in not only your hometown, but markets across the Southeast and in places that we're familiar with, Austin, Nashville, Atlanta, Birmingham, and where we have those, those relationships. And so that's how we've been working, man. It's, it's been just over two years and, you know, a lot of trial and error, but start really feeling that we have found a, a sweet spot to really create impact. I, I'm curious because you, mm -hmm. you've become like a role model and the role model. And we talked about the different weight an athlete feels. Do you feel the, the weight that you needed to be a role model? Because I understand, I, I want to preface this. I don't understand, but I could hear how some athletes sit there and say, hey, I'm not a role model. I'm a professional athlete. This is about me. I'm playing a sport. You get to watch. I'm not a professional athlete. And then you get the ones that do use their platform and then they get criticized, like shut up and dribble, right? Like, just yeah. like, just you're an athlete, just go do your job. Do you feel like every athlete has that responsibility to be a role model? Um, and if so, and, and you clearly felt it for yourself, did that weigh in on you? Uh, does that weigh on you throughout your playing time as well? It's it's all down to personal belief. Um, if you feel and you're convicted to do something, um, you're going to do it not out of compulsion or guilt. Um, for me, it was more of a conviction, not a, not a condemnation, right? There's a difference. And for me, I felt very convicted to do, to do things because I've seen, you see all this social injustice and the social unrest and you're like how can i be a part of the solution but if you don't feel that that doesn't mean you're a bad person it just means that that's that's not what's for you right maybe you have something other to, you know something else to offer the world and so but if you do it out of a guilt 
in a, a, a feeling condemned and feeling like you have to do it, your authenticity and your drive and your motivation won't be there. It's not, it's not going to sustain you when the, when the going gets tough, right? When you get punched in the mouth and you're just like, what am I doing this for anyway? Because your why won't be there. And so if your why isn't there, then you shouldn't feel obligated to do something. Like now my belief is, yeah, you, you've gotten to a certain platform and you just don't turn your back on everybody. Like, all right, y'all, good luck. That's just not how I'm made up. And so my conviction came a lot from my upbringing, my relationship with God and what my values are. What was it? Was it, was it, was it pure conviction or because you were raised that way? And because you had the mindset, you felt obligated to there, there, like there was a little bit of obligation. Like I can't turn my back on, on, on my community. Probably some mixed in there. Um, I guess it's more of a conditioning, right? Like it was almost conditioned, like, yo, you got to take care of, you know, not that you're going to take care of everybody, but you got to like, look out for those who, who, who come from where you come from or, or who don't have an opportunity, right? Like that's kind of like, I guess, been subconsciously programmed in my brain from an early age. And that's how I was brought up. And so not everybody has similar upbringing. Some people just, you know, look, I'm looking out for myself and me and my family, we're good. And that's all I need to worry about. Look, cool. So that's why I say it's not, it's an individual decision. I don't think that it's a blanket um, responsibility for all athletes to do what I'm doing or have similar convictions. I don't, I, I don't think that that's fair. And, and a lot of times black athletes in particular are, 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 are pigeonholed as like, yo, you, you have to do this because look at black communities and, and, and communities of color. And I get that argument, but I don't feel like it's fair to um, obligate somebody to do something that they don't feel is authentic to them. I love that answer. Um, I'm going to wrap up with this and then I want to give you the opportunity to tell people how they could get involved with kingdom or how they could, uh, benefit you, uh, the way you're benefiting so many others. You're a big champion of, for medical marijuana, something you've been very, very vocal about for a long time. Anyone who's followed you knows that. Um, I guess the question is why, right? I mean, why, and why was it so important to you? Not why it should, should that, should that rule change? And do you find that the NFL's bend um, to, to marijuana was a giant victory to you. Uh, okay. Let me, let me just start at the beginning for me. It was a more of a, um, it was almost more of a necessity that I speak up about it because once I learned about it and I learned the, I learned of the functionality in the, the medical applications of it. I just felt like a lot of us were in the dark, like, yo, athletes smoke weed all day, but it ain't about, you know, medical, you know, purposes. This is like, yo, I had a hard day. I'm about to roll up. And that is what it is. That's just the culture. But um, a lot of the times, you know, there's been, there's been things that have been intentionally kept from the, the general public. And I think cannabis was a victim of that for many reasons. And I don't want to go all the way back you know, to why, but when I seen the stories of guys killing themselves and for a long period of time, CTE was a, a, was a weekly headline back in 2014, 2015. And you guys, you got guys like Junior Seau committing suicide. And even one of my former teammates committed suicide 
um, when I was playing with him. And so um, it's one of those things that kind of hits you. It's like, man, is that going to be me five, 10 years down the line? I'm not that old, but I have been playing football for a long time. So what are my options? Like, how, how do I protect my brain the best I can um, and not just get, not shoved down Percocets every day? And when I started looking into to medical cannabis, specifically uh, CBD, cannabidiol, uh, oil, it was one of those things where I was like, whoa, like there's a patent on this. The U.S. Department of Health has a patent on CBD oil as a neuroprotectant. I'm like, hmm, why doesn't the mass population know about this? Um, maybe it's not profitable. Maybe it's, you know, shh, hush, hush, let's keep the pharmaceuticals flowing. Who knows? But for me, it was like, all right, I'm seeing people who have epilepsy and I'm seeing people who have, you know, all these pain, fibromyalgia and all these things that they're dealing with and they're taking CBD and, and, and they're being relieved from these uh, ailments. I'm like, man, this ain't right. I literally was the, the girl, I don't know if you remember um, that there was a brand called Charlotte's Web and there was this girl who was suffering from seizures. It was a documentary that I watched um, called Weed. And um, it really dove into it. And then I started doing my own research. Uh, Eugene Monroe, who was the first active player to, to be an advocate for marijuana, he started sending me a whole bunch of research, started really diving into it, looking at stuff out of Israel. And I'm like, man, this is, this is scientific. This is not subjective. This is very scientific data that is very promising. Why is nobody talking about this? And so when Eugene Monroe gave me the opportunity to, to join him and do an interview with Katie Kirk, Back in 2015, I was like, I jumped all over it. And so from that moment, it was like, man, more guys need to know about this. We need to understand what our options are because a lot of people walk, walk away from the game of football messed up, man. And so if there's one tool or one thing that we could like do that's going to help us out, why are we not being told about it? So I felt an obligation, man, to that's where I did feel an obligation to feel like I needed to spread the word about something like this. Love it. So do you, do you find the victory like the, the bend, like you're, yeah. you're happy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a victory, but NFL always is about the, the they're, they're, sub, they're subjected to the court of public opinion. And so if the, the U S you know, wasn't favorable on legalizing cannabis, the NFL would not be favorable on legalizing it for their players. So it, it, it's not authentic by any means. Yeah. It's just one of those things where, uh, if it's culturally acceptable, you know, they'll, they'll give on it, but they've been, they was, they were always using that as a negotiation tactic in the collective bargaining agreement, all those negotiations. It was like, Hey guys play 18 games and you can smoke all the weed you want. And it was like, come on, man. Like that's not the same. We're not comparing apples to apples, but um, that's another story. Love it. Derek, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for, for all the work you do. For the people who want to learn more about you, get involved in whether it's Kingdom or any way, uh, how can they reach out to you? How can they find you? Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me on. My um, my social media handles are dmorg, D-M-O-R-G 91. Uh, our website is kingdomgroup.com. That's kingdom uh, with no vowels, K-N-G-D-M group.com. And um, yeah, hit us up, reach out to us. We'd love to, love to talk. Is that an athlete thing? Like I'm a professional athlete. Fuck it. I don't, I don't, I don't need vowels. Right. 
<laughs> I, I don't yeah, need keep, I don't need vowels. I'm not, I'm not the com- I'm not you common folk. I'm a professional athlete. I don't use vowels. Keep your damn vowels over there. <laughs> I don't need no damn vowels. <laughs> Love it, brother. Thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. Yes, sir. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for paying attention and tuning into that episode. If you enjoyed it, please do me a favor. Go leave a five-star review. Leave a review. Leave some comments. Share it with some friends. Spread the love. It would mean the world to me. Uh, Thank you so much for your attention and for tuning in, and I will see you on the next episode. 